One of the things that has been most helpful to me is developing a daily practice. And I struggled with that for a long time. My answer was to make a commitment to myself that I would practice for at least 10 minutes a day, every day, forever. Mm. And if you take that approach, what might happen is eventually you start to like doing it. Mm-hmm. and that it's no longer a burden. But even if it's still a burden, just stick with that commitment yeah. and that will be invaluable. Yeah. Hey everyone, it's Mind Rolling. I am back and I have a new guest today. Andy Carr, and uh, Andy, he actually just told me he lives in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Andy, I'm from Montreal, so I'm aware. Oh, okay. (laughs) Some Uh, people, you say Halifax, and they say, what? Yeah, right. Is that that country? Canada? Canada. Canada. You can't even get them to, if it's from Toronto, they still go Canada, you know, Montreal, whatever. Anyhow, all of to say, all to say, that uh, he's been a part of a community there for 30 years, and uh, which is, to me, one of the most important um, foundational communities that was started quite a long time ago when the East started to come back to the West. And, yes. uh, and in this case, it's Chogyam uh, Trumpa Rinpoche, and uh, yeah, I'm a huge fan, if you can call it that. So why not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why not? Uh, but can you uh, just start? Tell us. Well, how did you get there? I mean, you know, let's go back to when you maybe didn't realize there was a path to be happy. Well, I can trace it back to my teenage years when I was um, randomly given a copy of Zen and the Art of Archery. Oh, really? And uh, that was like the first thing that really um, set me up, uh, connect to Buddhism. And then I watched a lot of samurai movies with Shiro Mufuni in them. <laughs> oh, yeah, I saw them all. Yep. And, and I loved them. And I thought, wow, that's what I want to be. And uh, then... Somehow the the monk in one of them really inspired me or hooked me. Yeah. And I ended up dropping out of college and hitchhiking to San Francisco to study at Zen Center with uh, Suzuki Roshi. Uh-huh. That's fortunate. Yeah, I got there a little late. He was already very ill, and I never got to see him teach. Oh. But I did learn to meditate there, and um, Trungpa Rinpoche came out several times to visit with Suzuki Roshi, and then after Suzuki Roshi died, he... um, he was a lifeboat going around the Bay Area, picking up the survivors, and and I was fortunate enough to be one of them. Mm. Oh, that's phenomenal. And then, well, I mean, how do you, I mean? It's one thing, you know, the chronology is one thing, but what was going on inside that something was revealed to you? You know, Zen and the art of archery. What happened inside to? start you to go, okay, I, I want to go for this. I mean, for me, it was uh, meeting Ram Dass, you know, back then, same, probably same period of time. Yeah. And then, you know, knowing, okay, I got to meet what he meant. I'm not, you know, you guys, it was like, boom. So, yeah, how did that boom happen inside? I was a um, lonely, screwed up kid. And... um confused and uh, in a lot of pain. And this image of the Zen master, the um, reading Zen mind, beginner's mind, and the feeling that I got from that 
and then meeting Trungpa Rinpoche, all of those were the antithesis of how I felt about myself. <laughs> so it was some idol worship of, of wanting to be like that. Or isn't it also a breath of fresh air oh, on yeah. a day-to-day basis? Like, wow, there's... Well, it, it was both. It was both a breath of fresh air occasionally uh, and mostly just the feeling that this was a lifeline. Mm. So, yeah, and that that was it's the same, I guess, for just most people from then, now. You 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 see the lifeline and you grab it and, and yeah. you start pulling, yeah. You know, and that's the initiative to really go after it. Basically, I mean, that's uh, it's as simple as that, no? Yeah, and I think one of the things that that inspired me a lot was the lifeline seemed to be very much do it yourself. Uh, that you get guidance, but that it was really up to you to do it. They'd give you the tools, uh, practice of meditation, things to read or listen to, but that somehow you, the ideal that you should be able to um, do this yourself, whatever Mm -hmm. this meant, (laughs) which I was pretty unclear about, Mm -hmm. um, that that appealed to me a lot. I'm just trying to think back. Okay, what was I thinking in terms of, uh, boy, you know, you can do this yourself. Uh, well, of course, you know, that that is of the Buddha. That's what the Buddha said. Experiences, exactly. don't trust nothing. Yeah. Do it. And um, so our tradition is not Buddhist, but it's not Hindu either. It's some kind of crazy combination. I don't know if you know much about <clears throat> Ram Dass's trip and, you know, those of us that were back there. At that time, a bit. Um, I read "Be Here Now" when it came out, and it was super inspiring for me. And uh, I was at a couple of occasions when uh, Ramdas was with Trungpa Rinpoche on a retreat that uh, Trungpa Rinpoche led in Wyoming, and uh, then when Ramdas came to Naropa. You were there in Naropa. Yeah. Uh huh. Cool. Yeah, I was living in Boulder at that time. Oh, you were? Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, anyhow, the representation is more about Neem Karoli Baba, and Ramdas transmitted quite well to millions of people what that was. But what it was, it, it had, it wasn't do it yourself. It wasn't not do it yourself. It wasn't uh, meditation. On the other hand, we were all doing Vipassana meditation. And he would actually, you know, he'd say at some point, like I think, if he wanted to get rid of, it was too much. These hippies are all around him. You know, two, three hundred people. If you can imagine, that's the only Westerners who ever saw this being. Yeah. And yeah. he'd say uh, a core in English because he supposedly didn't speak English, but he'd say words. Uh, course, you going to go to the course? So, oh, okay. So what the hell? We didn't know from the course, except Ramdas had done. You know, a few consecutive. Uh, uh, months there, several courses with a bunch of Westerners, some of who ended up uh, seeing Neem Karoli Baba. And then Vipassana became a grounding, foundational practice for many, many people to this day, as well as many people, you know, you know, like Danny Goldman is close to His Holiness, and Krishnadas is a student of Tokni Rinpoche, and you know we all have taken. Tea. So that seems to be, it's a blend somehow. But yeah. the idea, yeah, I had no idea that I had any chance to do anything on my own, and it worked out perfectly for me. Oh God! Well, you know, one of the things, the hallmark, I would say, of Trungpa Rinpoche's teachings in the first years in uh, North America was sitting meditation. The sitting practice of meditation. And yeah. he would not give a talk without emphasizing that. And uh, we had attendance books that we had to fill in uh, oh, really? to, that he would check. He would <laughs> see if you would have been sitting your required oh, amount. He, oh, my God. He did everything he could to encourage us to keep really? sitting, keep practicing. Yeah. 
Well, we we spent time at Tale of the Tiger in Vermont. What's it called now? Um, Charma, uh, Karma Trolling, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we spent time with him when we came back from India in the early uh-huh. 70s uh-huh. Uh, there. And, of course, you know, he had such a great time with Ramdas making fun of him uh, and us, for that matter. Oh, the Light and Lovers are back. Hi. <laughs> That's what he called us, Light and Love. Um, and uh, what t- just some of your experience directly with him. Would you share? Sure. Um, I, I, I'm not a very good storyteller. And most of my stories about being with Trump Rinpoche were um, so much inner experience and not mm. so much outer experience that they don't make very vivid narratives. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, being around him was was both magical and terrifying. There were times, well, you probably saw this, that uh, that being around him was like being around a live electric wire. And mm-hmm. uh, other times he was just like the father you always wish you'd had. Mm. Very loving, very kind. So... Um, yeah, uh, I did get to be his attendant later on oh, in, in his life and um, one of his attendants. And uh, it was it was quite special to spend time around him. You never quite knew what would happen. And uh, sometimes it would be fairly incomprehensible. And other times it would be just very sweet. What do you think of the whole crazy wisdom thing? I mean, uh, so many people have so many different takes, and we're in a a period of time when you know some of that's really being addressed in a, in a way that I, I don't think I've ever seen it in my lifetime. So yeah, the crazy wisdom. So where does it even emanate from? Where's this term come from? Where does who's it associated with? Well, it, it's associated with Trungpa Rinpoche. It is a translation from the Tibetan, but I don't think it's an orthodox one. The um, the sense of crazy in this case is not wild. It's not wild and crazy guy. It's yes, about unconventional. It's uh-huh. not, you know, our, our normal approach to life is me-centric. When you take away me, and there's no more centric there, it can look very crazy to outsiders. Hmm. You know, one of the things that I could say about my experience of Trungpa Rinpoche was there didn't seem to be any sense of self-orientation in his activity. Hmm. You know, he never was acting from, I need this Mm -hmm. or I need that. So... That's crazy. And I think, you know, you have to combine that, not just the, the non-egocentric part, but also the wisdom part, the insight into how the mind works, how reality works. And that's also crazy because reality is not necessarily how we normally conceive of it. Not necessarily, so, is it? <laughs> yeah. So you know, there's, there's some radical transformation that 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 go you go through on these journeys, and you see differently. Mm. So both the wisdom and the crazy refer to um, not falling into the conventional, not falling into um, the. Um, habitual way of viewing. Yeah, which is very difficult on a day-to-day basis for many, (laughs) many, many people. And there are people who profess to be in that place where they are no longer, there is not that attachment to the me. They are out of polarization inside. And they're espousing that and and using this in a way that's very pernicious, you know, many teachers. So it's 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 a tough thing 
But I think the, uh, the Ramdas addressed this actually a long time ago, uh, probably in a talk in the '70s, because I, I think we put it as a, up as a podcast on Be Here Now Network. And he really addressed this thing because he was getting flack back, you know, for this crazy wisdom. Uh, yeah. As as an overall, you know, the the negation was it was an excuse, and he really addressed it. And and part of it was. Um, to to dismiss it on that basis would be the same thing as dismissing it on the other side. You know what I mean? I mean mm-hmm. that, you know, to say there are, there's a reality that more teachers out there than not are, are not free. And what yes. is going on is, is, you know, is very negative for sure. Yeah. You can't well, dismiss but, that, and you can't dismiss the the potential of a human being to be uh, beyond what um, convention is. That's my take. Yeah, I I, I, I agree with you. Uh, Trinker Rinpoche warned a lot about charlatans, and mm-hmm. um, I think you know they're they're both charlatans, and then they're people who are not really that well trained who have titles and go around doing little ceremonies and so on and uh, espouse things that they don't really They're experience. not living. Yeah, yeah. they're not living. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, especially in the psychedelic world, by the way, Andy. I just uh, came back from a, a, few, a couple of weeks ago, a big psychedelic science convention in Denver that MAPS puts on put on. I mean, it was 12,000 people there with all sorts of wow. incredible presentations. But that's prevalent in that scene as well, especially around ayahuasca. Uh, so, listen, this is in every part of our, of our culture, of our society. And, uh, you know, the viveka, the Buddhist viveka, discriminating wisdom is, mm-hmm. shoot there. Get get there. <laughs> we should all just shoot there a little bit. Yeah. Well, I think you know, from my experience on this path and and that of my friends, um, humility seems to be really important. Genuine mm-hmm. humility. And mm-hmm. I think you know, we've been beaten up a lot. We've been beaten up by our teachers for the right reasons, and we've been beaten up a lot for problems in our communities and i think the thing that that i get out of that is the need to be really genuine and humble mm, absolutely we can add a few more of those adjectives actually but yeah. we will because we're going to we'll talk a little bit about your this book so andy's got a, a book into the mirror a buddhist journey through mind matter and the nature of reality and uh yeah, it's got chock full of all kinds of good stuff to ruminate over and and practice, actually. Um, but how about this? So I, I love Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche. I mean, you talk mm-hmm. about him all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and your quote from him, to expect happiness without giving up negative action is like holding your hand in a fire and hoping not to get burned. Simple and direct, but that's who he is, was. Yeah. And uh, so, um, did you meet him, by the way? Dilgo yeah. Yeah, because yeah. Um, yeah, if you were with Trumpo, sure. Well, that, but but more because I lived in Paris from 1979 to 1989, oh, and well. he would come to Paris yeah, yeah. on his way down to the Dordogne where he had students in retreat. And because we were, my wife and I were students of Trumper and Pichet's, we were treated like we were his emissaries and oh, wow. invited over to the apartment that uh, Kensi Rinpoche stayed at. So really, okay. Yeah. Tell me what that was like. I mean, I know I have friends, you know, Lama Surya Das and and others who spent a lot of time. Uh, but yeah, what was, I mean, he just he is just uh, incredible, especially and he everybody out there. He was like what six foot seven or something. Very unusual. Something like that. He was yeah. big. 
he was a huge man and had a huge presence, never mind the size. Yeah. And and really seemed to me to be beyond polarization. Oh, Not yeah. doing anything for himself anymore. Yeah, absolutely. But I have to admit that um, I spent a fair amount of time with him. My wife and I spent a fair amount of time with him. Often we'd be invited over and just sit in his bedroom while he was meeting people and things. Oh. And I was pretty arrogant about Tibetans and uh, I, I didn't Meaning? see I didn't see Trungpa Rinpoche as a Tibetan, and I was arrogant in believing that Trungpa Rinpoche was the only valid teacher. And so I, oh. my, my mind was fairly closed when I was in there. My wife, on the other hand, completely opened up. She got his radiance and bathed in it. Mm. And I sat there squirming mostly. Oh, really? Oh. <laughs> uh. So uh, I can't say that I, I, I learned what I might have mm. being around him. Mm. Karma. Bad karma. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyhow, um, but uh, the, the um, I mean, the premise of the book, being in, in accord with reality, pretty much says, uh, you know, and... Uh, um, I think that what was it? oh yeah in in just in the very beginning um just imagine you wake up the day begins right okay here we go and what that reminded me of is this ongoing project I'm doing with a, another podcaster named Duncan Trussell who and I talk about this all the time everybody I'm so sorry but Andy doesn't know a thing about it it's called the movie of me to the movie of we and it's an audio book <laughs> that we're working on right uh-huh. and a lot of uh, not a lot but certainly you know we're on the same page pretty much in, in terms of that but uh, yeah talk about it from your point of view that i that we just open our eyes and wake up to and never let go 24/7 yeah, it's it's impressive that um, the tenacity. Yeah, of, well, listen, I mean, it's so op- oppressive, Andy, that yeah. me and Duncan went like, "This is we let's let's share this so at least people feel a little bit like we're not the only ones that are, you know, completely, uh, you know, the self interested, the motive, yeah. especially if you have any kind of mindfulness and meditative practice, you know." Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, I you know to to me that introductory um, little bit at the beginning of the book is about as close as I get to realization in my experience that um, I wake up, I'm involved in my projects, my plans for the day, my memories of the thing we watched on television the night before, my irritation with so-and-so and... So that was a description of my life. Yeah. It's, and then, but it, it's common. It's not it's at all. It's completely common. But at some times, in some moments, through some blessing, there's a gap. And in that gap, you might recognize that all the stuff that's going on is happening in your mind. It's not part of the furniture of reality. Mm. Yeah. And that moment of of seeing that gap, seeing the fact that um, you've projected all of this, is liberation. It's liberation for a moment, but it's it does shift things a little. Yeah. Well. Yeah, and it occurs to me that uh, these kind of moments are inspirational, really. Yeah. Because then they really you can connect and with the trust in that and and the intuitive uh, reality that we have in, inside ourselves gets more opened up or jump started, shall we say? So yeah, yeah. But um, so two ways of seeing you talk about the confused way: all the images that arise in your mind as facts without reality, enticing facts or oppressive facts, promises, threats, gods, demons, right? The hundred thousand beautiful visions and the hundred thousand horrible. Yep. 
The other way is to recognize these experiences for what they are, mind stuff, which is what you just said, mere transient mental phenomena. Now, recognizing that and uh, acting on it. Let's talk about acting on that because that's, the, that's really the difficulty. And it's also, um, I think we humans are, you know, have fundamental laziness. What did the Buddha talk about that? He must have talked about that, right? Yeah. 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 So anyhow, yeah, the, the putting it into action. Yeah, it takes, especially at the beginning, it takes a lot of effort uh, to develop your attentiveness, to start to even notice that your mind is filled with stuff. That's... A, a big first step, but it it's an effort, and um, mindfulness. We're talking without that, you pretty much. I mean, that's a, a such a. It's now a generic, meaningless term, like so much other terms that we have in the English language. But it, but the reality is, there has to be that you know move, movement towards a, a awareness of motivations, etc., and everything. Yes, else. yes, and then you know. Even as you develop mindfulness and you start to be aware of how distracted you are and how much is going on in your mind, it's pretty compelling and um, very hard to know what to do about that. You know, you, the instinct is I should be able to stop this or I should be able to subdue it or dissolve it or get out of it. And that's what meditation should be about. The more you go on, the more you find there's just no handle for that. There's no way that you can just suppress your mental activity because the suppression is further mental activity. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you've got to find a different way of working with it. And that different way is is to shift from trying to develop peace by calming your mind you start to develop peace by making peace with what's going on in your mind. Mm, very good. I like that, Andy. Yeah, that to yeah. me is, is a key step. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you, once you start to develop a little peace and start to relax a bit about all this crap that you're experiencing all the time, then you might start to recognize the nature of that stuff. And as you recognize it, it really does what we say, what we call self-liberate. It's not like you have to fix it or oh, yeah. get rid of it. Right. It's just, oh, wow, that's mind stuff. And then it doesn't have power over you. Yeah, the reaction. Yeah, I mean, people ask me, actually, well, you've been doing this for decades. I mean, where did you get, buddy? And I say, <laughs> uh, and I say the reaction time on most of what's incoming in my life or coming from whatever thought is just absolutely uh, expanded. So there's more yeah. spaciousness. I mean, yeah. that that's a truism. Yeah. You know? That and on the other end, when you do lose it, it's not as yeah, you don't wanna, powerful and overpowering yeah. and long-lasting. Yeah, you, want, you don't want to commit harakiri as much as you used <laughs> or to. Or murder. Yeah. <laughs> that is murder. Uh, this from uh, this is interesting to talk about. This is a quote. You have nice quotes in here, Andy. Uh, this is from Trungpa. The basic idea of the sitting practice of meditation is that it is what the Buddha did. And because of that, he attained enlightenment. That's the basic point, and we have been told how to practice that way too, so that in turn, we can gain enlightenment. What's he talking about there? We can gain enlightenment in this? Uh, just, uh, it's a little far-fetched for me. That's the most far-fetched thing I've heard from him. Well, you know, I think my uh, 17-year-old version of enlightenment, of becoming like Tashira Mufuni, yeah, ain't going to happen. So I I can I, on that level I'd say it's not going to happen. Yeah. On the other hand, just getting to know your mind, 
having a little spaciousness, as you described, that's getting to the point. Yeah, absolutely. Can we add, uh, and being more kind, compassionate, and loving to that, and and yeah, and knowing course. that serving, you know, serving others is uh, what we are here for, and not just the me, me. Yeah. And that's enlightenment. And yeah. so I'm, I was thinking, okay, he must mean, that's what he must mean. Okay. To, to well, be, I, think, I think he's, honestly, I would say that what he was talking about in that quote is the full meal deal that um, actually you can realize the nature of everything in your experience. Now, have I done that? No. But well, okay, I, then well, we have to then define uh, enlightenment. I mean, we have to get there. I mean, and he's defining it as Buddha's invite enlightenment and yeah. and I met that being in Neem Karoli Baba. So I and it was the astounding thing, holy shit, there's nothing in there. That's right. That was the immediate thing, you know, there's nothing in there. And, yeah. I mean, nothing to bounce off of like we do with each other all the time. So um, I'm thinking I have to go back to what we just described, spaciousness, non-reactivity, um, loving understanding of being human, it's okay, and then adding being kinder, more compassionate. I mean, that's enlightenment, I think. Yeah, and I think those are the the... That's the footpath toward this further level of um, nothing there. Mm. You know, um, before we get to the end of this, I'd love uh, for you to lead uh, that that meditation uh, that that you led in the book. I mean, you probably led more than one, but it was the, the, this the spacious meditation. Actually, this uh, the formless meditation, right? Mm-hmm. And Rinpoche said, "This is the closest thing to doing nothing." Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. like that. It's not yeah. quite doing nothing because of the technique, but at the same time, it's close to doing nothing. If you try to hold yourself to doing nothing and controlling yourself, then you're struggling with yourself and your energy. So if you let go, which is in people, you'll stay to the end here. I mean, and shortly, and it uses breath to let go. Uh, you'll experience that. Uh, let go of the engine, which is breathing. You learn how to ride the breathing, so to speak, how to go along with the energy. Relaxation and other things become byproducts. Yes. One does not have to try to achieve or try to be in a perfect particular state at all. So, yeah. Um, so as part of practice... I mean, as part of this awakening, you know, and you describe it in in the book as well. Um, maybe it's it's good for people to to hear how to approach practice in a way that's not "I've got to do it," shit, you know, or oh yeah, you know, or the opposite <laughs> of that. Yeah, the middle path. How do you even, you know, it's hard well, for I, people. This is the biggest question, by the way, Andy, that we have people coming in taking our courses at Love, Serve, Remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ram Das is uh, the, the uh, nonprofit that is the umbrella for everything that we do, including this podcast network. And um, how to practice. I can't seem to get into a pattern of doing it. I it I I my mind's too crazy. I can't meditate. You know all of those kinds of things. How to transform that approach? Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that has been most helpful to me is developing a daily practice, and I struggled with that for a long time. On the one hand, I felt like Buddhism. And the path of meditation was the most important thing in my life. What else was important? And on the other hand, I found myself not doing it. And at a certain point, I realized that that was bullshit. And my answer was 
to make a commitment to myself that I would practice for at least 10 minutes a day, every day, forever. Mm. The 10 minute threshold really worked for me because I was never able to find a day where I couldn't find 10 minutes to sit. Sometimes it would be after having too many drinks sitting up on (laughs) my bed at 11.30 at night. But still, once you get a a streak going, like anything else, you don't want to break the streak. And so that was a really helpful method for me to establish my practice. And I've told other people, you know, even if it's five minutes a day, if you make a commitment and stick to it, that's the main thing. You might think you need to sit for hours a day to make any difference, but I'll tell you something. Getting onto the cushion is more important than how long you stay on it. Mm. And if you take that approach, what might happen is eventually you start to like doing it mm-hmm. and that it's no longer a burden. But even if it's still a burden, just stick with that commitment yeah. and that will be invaluable. Yeah. Reorient your habitual pattern. Is, Build a habitual pattern yeah. that is valuable to you. Yeah. And the other thing I, f- I found long, long time ago, going through just what you described, was it was great to look forward to getting to know oneself better, that was one thing, and also being able to hang out with, as Ramdas used to put it, all my friends on my altar, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, uh, and, yeah having you know, that kind of friendly attitude towards it. Yeah, and the, you can start to develop a slightly romantic feeling about practicing, you know, if you go on retreat sometime, on a solitary retreat, you get a chance to really be with yourself and it's kind of heroic and kind of scary and kind of beautiful. And yeah. So, um, you know, that's another way of, of encouraging yourself. Yeah. But I, I think, you know, there's no, no substitute in my mind for just developing the habit of practicing. Mm. I think alongside of that, is perspective because uh, you you see yourself and then it goes back to mindfulness you see your resistance your fear your boredom whatever it might be and you have to have you have to there's, there's should have could have would have it is great to be able to look at, at from the perspective of oh Okay, I see the, those. Those are just human qualities. I'm lazy too, you know. So, but I'm going to sit down anyhow. And and you have that, you know. Uh, Ramdas, when he first came back to from India, he was just going around talking about develop a witness. It was more from mm-hmm. uh, Gurdjieff mm-hmm. and Ospensky than than the East, basically. And it's ended up being that's you know awareness part of mindfulness and so on and so forth but whatever way you just can't be doing it from the judging mind center because that yeah. doesn't do anything it's useless so uh that's why you know the uh, meditation with breath is very uh uh i think it's really one of the easiest ways to connect and get beyond the negativity of not practicing yeah yeah. And I think, you know, another thing is when you develop the view, when you develop your understanding of the practice a little and go beyond the notion that the practice is supposed to make you feel better, you might start to, to, to have a different feeling toward those obstacles, that those obstacles, which seem like they're problems to be solved, actually are the potentials of insight. Mm. That when you see your resistance, when you see your laziness, you might recognize that those are also just products of your mind. Mm. And they're very powerful as long as you play along with them. But there's a, a point where you start to say, oh, yeah, 
this happens, and then I go sit down, and it's okay. It passes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's another great thing to remember. Yeah. Impermanence, everybody. It works. It's not so good when you lose something you like, but, you know, it can also work when what you don't like kind of moves away. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Here's something from, uh, we mentioned him before, Tsokni Rinpoche, or I did, uh, another great, uh, great, great uh, teacher and son of Tulku Urge and Rinpoche. And uh, yeah, I mean, the family itself is it's unbelievable. Amazing. Yeah. So he said that, and, and you know, this is to get a little bit more understanding of, of what he's saying here, and it's around um, feelings. Uh, believe that understanding the subtle body and its influence on our thoughts, actions, and particularly our emotions is an essential to understanding the layers that obscure our ability to relate warmly and opening, openly to ourselves, others, and the conditions that surround our lives. Without understanding the subtle body, moreover, most meditation practices become simply exercising exercises rather in extending our own comfort zones, a series of techniques that result in preserving the solid sense of quote unquote I. So, so t- uh, yeah, let's um, dissect the subtle body. What what is he talking about there? I think uh, the heart of the issue is that we modern people are very heady. We're Mm. very, we're trained to use our intellect. We go to school for a dozen or more years to train just to use intellect, intellect, intellect. Mm -hmm. We approach meditation as though it's an intellectual exercise. I am going to learn about my experience. And I am now thinking, so I am going to think about my thinking. And we get caught in um, ignoring what else is happening. And what else is happening is usually some bodily sensations, some feelings, some emotionality, things arising and um, disappearing. And all that stuff is like, oh, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in learning how to mm. calm my mind, calm my intellect, basically. Work with my thoughts. So this is a way of um, expanding our awareness beyond just the thinking or the narrative mind and starting to see how there's so much that's continually happening, that's actually driving the show and um, and driving the thinking process, and we ignore it. So you have a feeling in your chest of tightness or anxiety or whatever. Fear. You push it down mm. because you've got to drive forward with whatever you're doing. That pushing it down reinforces it, it gives it energy, and um, prevents you from recognizing it. So what Sony Rinpoche has very skillfully done is he's, he's taught a method of dropping down from the thinking mind into the feeling itself, not knowing the feeling intellectually, but feeling the feeling. And just letting it be and taking that attitude that whatever it is, if it's resistance, irritation, anxiety, if it's pleasurable, whatever it is, it'll stay for a while and then go. If you struggle with it, any negative thing will get stronger. So give it space, let it be there. And then at some point it will go. It may stay around a lot longer than you'd like. Tant pis, as we say in the French, too bad. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, you know, it's really about letting, first dropping out of the discursive mind 
into the feeling, into the subtle body. This, this feeling is the subtle body. And uh, being willing to let that just be. Sometimes Sonia Rinpoche talks about beautiful monsters, which yeah, are yeah. recurring <laughs> habitual anxieties or angers or whatever your particular emotional hangups are that come again and again. Mm, beautiful monsters. And yeah, and so he, so he calls them beautiful monsters yeah, that on yeah. one hand, they seem monstrous. On the other hand, once you learn to look at them and rest with them, something else happens. Then mm -hmm. they lose a lot of that power. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Make so I, I, have, I have found um, that approach that Sunday Rinpoche presents extremely helpful in my own practice. And I kind of wish I had discovered it 10 years before. Mm, mm, yeah, he's a phenomenal. I, uh, I'm incorrectly probably pronouncing his name, Sokni. You're leaving out the, the harsh K, I think. Yeah. I think you're right, though. I, I could be, but pronouncing Tibetan. Yeah, right. Nice. Where are we going to go? T-S-O-K-N-Y-I, <laughs> Rinpoche, yeah. Tsokni. It's, and he yeah, has we, a, I, I have to uh, champion this book that he did with Danny Goleman, Daniel from great. our, yeah, Why We Meditate, a phenomenal yeah. book. And it's not just about meditation by any stretch at all. It's got phenomenal. He's just one great teacher. Period. He is one great teacher. And I, I have been studying with him and, uh, I, I think he's fantastic. Yeah, so great. Shout and, out and, you know, fantastic in the sense of having um, insight into Westerners, into modern people, yeah. Yeah. and, you know, not approaching it just from the tradition. Yeah, the classics, yeah. Yeah, and that's so important. And there's more than he, he who, Mingjur Rinpoche, also his brother. I mean, it's crazy, yeah. that family, but, okay, yeah. Nima. Yeah, choking his other yeah. brother. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, they're I uh I just have to get this in. You know, I'm I'm like love reading these wonderful quotes you got. Here's one from Gellick Rinpoche, who I I did a podcast with before he left. So he's he was just phenomenal. The true beautiful. enemy is hey, that? He was a beautiful man. Yeah, beautiful. Absolutely. The true enemy is inside, the maker of trouble, the source of all our suffering, the destroyer of our joy, and the destroyer of our virtue is inside. It is ego. I call it I, the most precious one. I, the most precious one, does not serve any purpose. It only makes tremendous, unreasonable, impossible demands. Ego wants to be the best and has no consideration for anyone else. Things work fine as long as I the, quote, I, the most precious one's wishes, are being fulfilled. But when they're not, and ego turns on the self, it becomes self-hatred. That self-hatred will eventually burn the house down. Yeah. How well put, right? <laughs> well, uh, you know, when I was writing this book, I wanted to use a lot of long quotes. Yeah. No, both, I both love it. Because I thought they were really helpful but also as an homage to these teachers who yeah. I respect so much. I didn't want to do a big gush about yeah. how wonderful Zokni Rinpoche is. I thought, you know, doing a, giving a long quote from him at the beginning of a chapter would be a, a good way of, of including him in this. Mm. No, absolutely. Oh, that's so great. Um, but by the way, just thinking back to, um, what we were speaking to just before around moving out of that uh, eye-centric place in the head into a, f a place where you connect with the feeling that is going on, I have to say one uh, one of the this uh, one of the great things that Ramdas got into at the end of his life in Maui as a teacher was just bringing to the table this uh, what he called uh, loving awareness which many people are using. They picked it up, Jack and Jack Cornfield and others uh, who were close to him. And, uh, but 
it, I just want to mention it because it is one way to relate, uh, to get to the place where you are not relating it, uh, relating to the uh, either existential stuff or, or, or actual direct kinds of uh, difficulties that, that emerge through, uh, through body and mind. And it was, he, it was uh, to focus on the breath in the center of one's being, chest, and to s- start with I am loving awareness mm-hmm. and repeating it over. It allows, it was such, it was really uh, simplistic in, in a way, mm-hmm. um, but effective because of it, because it allow, you started identifying with that place that was not the critical mind I. And you know that's easy to recognize. That's and really so, nice. And, and then just, and then he would go, and then after it was just loving awareness, just the being of it. There was no more I, just loving aware. You know, the I allowed you to move from that other I into you know the non-judgmental place. So yeah, everyone, if you've been listening to mind rolling, of course you know this exercise because I have repeated it many, many times, but I think it's apt in relation to how we shut down, which the, you know, the subtle, uh, energies that, uh, Rinpoche was talking about and, uh, to recognize how we do shut down, being able to sort of make friends with some of the ones that are really tough. Never mind the ones that are very pleasurable. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, to me, two of the big lessons uh, in approaching Buddhism are that, on the one hand, this notion of uh, getting rid of all the things you don't like in your mind doesn't work. Never happens. And you have to make friends with them. And the other big learning, I think, is that if you're trying to become compassionate to be a good person, there's a struggle involved. And it's hard. And it doesn't generally work so well. But if you can find some simple way to tune in to the natural warmth instead of trying to become something, yeah, yeah. it's going to be more effective. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's a tight wire. Act. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and we fall off it to either side all the time. Yep. Yep. And that's so okay. Pra- yeah, because the practice okay. is okay. Get back up. Yep. Walk it some more. Yeah. Fall some more. Sharon One Salzberg. My- uh, sorry. I was just thinking Sharon Salzberg calls we humans have a beautiful, beautiful virtue. We can always return mm. from wherever it is that we might have mm. gone mm. back to the center of, of of the practice or of mindfulness or of the breath, particularly. Yeah. One one of my teachers was fond of saying, "Making mistakes and making mistakes, we arrive at a place beyond mistakes." Mm. Yeah. Do you want to uh, lead the few minutes of uh, this practice that Rinpoche was, Trungpa Rinpoche was speaking to and you sure. speak to in the book? It would be great. Happily. Happily. So this is um, the most basic approach to meditation that I know of. And it's very simple. It has to do with your body and your breath and your mind. So it always starts with just feeling your body and however it is right now, and then becoming a little bit more upright, more sense of your head and your shoulders and not um, slouching down, but feeling wakeful and um, okay with your body, even if it's not in perfect condition. So taking a, a decent posture where you feel somewhat settled and somewhat upright, 
You breathe very naturally. As you breathe, and as the breath goes out from your nostrils, you become the breath. Your mind goes out with the breath. And then you don't have to do anything. You don't have to bring it back in. You just breathe naturally, as naturally as you can, going out. The breath dissolves. You don't have to pay any attention to the in-breath particularly. And you breathe out again. You go out with the breath. Be the breath. It dissolves. Go out with the breath again. Breath dissolves into the space around you. And you find that you're distracted. You find that you're somewhere else. You're getting ready for dinner, going out, doing some work. The moment you notice that you're distracted, you're no longer distracted. You've already come back, so you don't have to make a further effort. You go out with the next breath. It dissolves. And so on. So maybe we can do that for a minute or two. That's it. Sometimes you might want to label the thinking that you notice as thinking, but you don't have to. Sometimes that's a helpful little punctuation mark to put on it. it sort of reinforces the notion that you've recognized that was going on. But the, the practices have a reasonably decent posture without straining breathe naturally go out with the breath and just dissolve into the space and then keep doing that keep losing that by getting distracted recognizing the distraction never struggling with the distraction never trying to not be distracted So that's it. You're muted. I am muted. I'm sorry. I got so deeply gone in the meditation that I didn't remember. Okay. Um, yeah. Don't struggle with the struggle. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the dissolution of mind through out-breath, that, that's a great practice. Yeah. And, and what's interesting in this technique is that the emphasis is less on holding on to the breath or holding on to some object than it is to just notice when you come back, when you yeah. come back from distraction. Keep because letting the, go, right? Let yeah. Go, and, let go. And, and the coming back is natural. So you're strengthening the ability to, mm. to come back from distraction mm. rather than trying to become undistracted. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Thanks so much, Andy. The book is My Into pleasure. the Mirror, everybody. We'll have it all be uh, linked up in the show notes 
on uh, Be Here Now Network uh, Mind Rolling. And uh, yeah, I'm happy, happy to have met you. And me too. It's really nice to get a chance to talk with you. And I hope people enjoy this conversation. Yep, I'm I'm sure they will. There's so much good inf great information too. So everybody, this is Mind Rolling. I'm Raghu on BeHereNowNetwork.com. Go there and catch many of, uh, I'm sure, mutual friends of both of ours or people we know in common uh, that are podcasting on the network. And we shall see you next week. Thanks, Andy. Thank you, Raghu.